0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, you are unique. There is no one like you. You're perfect in every way. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth, not only through song and through giving, through prayer, but also as we meditate upon what you've written. We pray that we would recognize the holiness and truth of your word, that we would reverence you as we consider your word, and that we would respond to you as you are clearly articulated in your word. Draw our attention to our Savior, ultimately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you recognize the names Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield? Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. These are men that God used early in the 18th century to demonstrate God's offer of salvation. And God used the ministry of both of these men to direct people to the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. So I have some questions for you about this. Did the Great Awakening, which is what that period is known as, did the Great Awakening happen because of the spirituality of these men? Did the Great Awakening happen because of the giftedness of these men? Did the Great Awakening happen because of the message of these men did the great awakening happen because of the recipients of the message these are logical questions these are important questions and the bible gives us some some understanding as to the answer to these and that's what i want us to start before we dive into our study of micah which is where we're headed I want for us to see a couple of concepts about God's Word that answers these types of questions because we're being introduced to Micah and the message of Micah and the effects that that message of Micah had back in the years 700 B.C. in that vicinity. First of all, the spirituality of the messengers of God does impact the message preached. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul's writing, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, listen carefully, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul is saying here in First Thessalonians chapter one and verse five, that as part of the impact of the message is the testimony of those preaching the message. So there is an element of importance to the spiritual condition of the messenger. Secondly, how about the giftedness of the messenger? Does that matter? And I would submit to you, yes, it does in fact matter. The Bible says to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, this statement. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Grace being God's enablement, God's divine power that He's entrusted to us. And so through that divine power, God has gifted us to serve one another. Look at verse 11 now on the screen. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles or words of God or statements of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, the giftedness of the messenger does have some import in the message preached. How about the message itself, the content of the message? I think that also, uh, there are some answers about that as well. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. So we see the the spiritual condition of the messenger. The giftedness of the messenger. The message itself. All of these are important in the conveying of the message. And the fruitfulness of the message. But you're in Mark chapter 4. What about the recipients of the message? What about the recipients of the message? Here... God is communicating to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and He speaks in parables. Now we're only going to read the explanation of the parable, but we have the, the sower of the seed and He sows on varied kinds of grounds and the, the results that are there. And Jesus explains this beginning in verse 13 of Mark chapter 4. The Bible says, And He, Jesus, said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves. And so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now we can't completely unveil everything that's wonderfully communicated here. But notice this, the recipients of the message. Various kinds. And the, the circumstances around the message and how that impacts it. And the, the supernatural conflict, satanic conflict that's going on, that impacts the message. Now, I have a question for you. Is God handicapped when some of these elements are missing? Because if we, if we subscribe to, okay, well, we've got a, a spiritual messenger. We have a gifted messenger. We have the right message. But we might have some unfertile soil. Is God handicapped? And, and I, want, I want to just remind you of a story. It takes an entire book of the Bible to tell this story. It's the story of one Jonah. What a gifted messenger with such a great spirit, so willing to go with the great message to a great group of people that were just so eager to hear. Negative, negative, and negative. No, no, and no. Not happening. And yet, with a reluctant messenger... With reluctant recipients, God brings forth repentance of a nation of people that didn't know Him to that point. Okay? Does God always bring about the same result if the spiritual condition, giftedness of the messenger, and the message itself are all right? Like, here we are, here's this gifted spiritual messenger that has the right spirit, spiritual message. Does that always flourish? Is there always a responsiveness? Let me remind you of someone. It took 66 books to talk about this one. His name is Jesus. Anyone more gifted? No. Anyone more spiritual? Has anyone articulated the message more flawlessly than he, and yet his message was not received by the mass uh, the vast majority? Hmm, this is so interesting, isn't it? In our mind, this is a this is a human thing. We think spiritual messenger. Gifted messenger, right message should yield X. This is the methodology that is prescribed and communicated in most books about preaching. And yet, the Bible contradicts that message that is being conveyed by so many. I want you to open your Bibles, please, to first. Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, such a vital concept that undergirds ministry and it should undergird our understanding of the, the book that we're about to consider. And I trust as we go along we will really get a good, a good sense of why we're talking about it this way as we enter into our study of the book of Micah. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, God's word is so clear. It says, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? Listen, I planted, Apollos watered. Will you read the rest of verse 6 with me? But God gave the increase. Listen carefully. So then, neither is he who plants, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters is anything. Listen, will you read the rest of verse 7 with me? But God who gives the increase. Can we agree? that the working of God is accomplished by God Himself? Now, I want to be a vessel fit for His use. And you want to be a vessel fit for His use. You want to be spiritually in the right condition. You want the Spirit to control you. You want the the giftedness of God that that He's given you to to shine through? You want the content of whatever message you're preaching to be right in accordance with the Gospel and truth? You, You really hope for a great and fertile soil upon which you minister? But listen, the only one who saves, the only one who changes people, is God. This is true in your personal relationships as you minister to your spouse. This is true in personal relationships as you minister to your children. Oh, I want them to be saved. I want them to be spiritual giants. I want them to, to serve the Lord all their days. And and listen, you're going to, by God's grace, give them spiritual content. And you'll live spiritually. And you'll, you'll exercise God's giftedness in your life and they'll see that. And you'll give them the, the right message. And you You rely upon the Lord. You rely upon the Lord. It's the only way it happens. As we begin our study of Micah, we want to consider the background and effect of the book. The background and the effect of the book. As well as the theological ramifications that remain from its message. So we we want to see what's going on, what's happening in the time of Micah. What does God do with this message that that he uses Micah to unveil? And what do we learn from that as a 21st century believer in a 21st century church? What we will notice is that Judah, now when I say Judah, do you know what I mean? Okay, we've we've got Israel, there are 12 tribes, right? There are twelve tribes under Saul, and twelve tribes under David, and twelve tribes under Solomon. But then when Solomon goes the way of all the earth, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne. And there's a bit of a conflict, we won't get into all the details of it, but there's a split in the kingdom. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who is a great name, takes the northern ten tribes of Israel and they are immediately begin worshiping incorrectly, idol worship. Rehoboam begins this leadership of the southern two tribes known as Judah. Judah. Northern tribes Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Joseph. Southern tribe, essentially, generally called Judah. So, we notice is that Judah, the southern two tribes, move, it moves from darkness What do we mean by darkness? Sinfulness, waywardness. To light. Following the truth again. God rescuing them. God giving them grace. Back to darkness again. But ultimately, friends, ultimately what we see from the book of Micah is it introduces us to the reality that God would bring forth everlasting light. To his people everlasting light so darkness to light to darkness but ultimately everlasting eternal light this is what we'll notice in Micah and we're tipped off let's head head over please to Micah chapter one now maybe you're not familiar with where Micah is you've got the five major prophets Isaiah Jeremiah Lamentations Ezekiel Daniel then you have the twelve minor prophets. They're not minor, please. It's just that they're smaller. You have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah. If you find yourself in Nahum, you're to the right, head left. If you find yourself in Habakkuk, head left. But Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, head to the right. So they were looking for Micah chapter 1. You might want to bookmark it so you don't have to go through this every week because we're going to be looking at Micah for a number of weeks anyway. We're tipped off to one of the most important points of this book right in the opening clause. God gets to the point right away. And I want to make sure that we get to the point right away. Look, please, what it says, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. God had a message for this broken, rebellious people. Well, how do you know that they're broken and rebellious? Believe me, you will see it. You'll see it you'll understand exactly why I'm calling them a broken and rebellious people. And what I'll say to you is that God has a message for this broken and rebellious people. God has a message for us. So God sends a message. Further embedded in this opening clause is a subtle message. The name Micah means, Who is like God? Who is like God? The word of the Lord that came to Micah. And his name means, who is like God. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the last chapter of Micah. Micah chapter 7. And what you'll notice is, Micah concludes with this same thought, that he begins. That's called bracketing. It's enveloping something. When you say something at the beginning and you reiterate it at the end, it means that this is what this message is about. Don't lose this fact at any point throughout our study. Because if you get caught up in the minute details, you're missing the big picture. It starts, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Who is like God? And it concludes in... Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and following says, Who is like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He who does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in mercy, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Listen, friends, this book is pointing us to one. This book wants to point us to our sovereign God, And ultimately, this book wants to point us to God's salvation offered through that sovereign God's Son, who is also a sovereign himself, who will come and rule and reign after he first comes and and deals with our sin forevermore. Now I'm speaking as a future because we're in Micah, right? So we're still looking forward as we're looking at Micah. So from their vantage point, they're still waiting for this promised one that would redeem them from their sin. But if you read it, you'll recognize there is not a faint hope, but a real confident hope of God's salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. Who is a God like you? Note this, it does not say who is a prophet like Micah? It does not say who is a people like Israel? And it does not say What a message from Micah! It says, Who is a God like you? Friends, this is my goal every time I open the Word with you. It's not that you would say, Oh, what a message! Is it the Gospel sweet? No! The Gospel is sweet. But I want you to know the God of the Gospel and the Jesus of the Gospel. When, when we leave here, we must leave saying, what is a God like this? There's no one like Him. This is what you need to leave. Every time you come this to this place, whether it be a Sunday school lesson, whether it be a morning service, an evening service, a Wednesday night service, a Saturday morning Bible study, Whatever the study is, we should leave saying, what a God we have, there is no one like Him. This should resonate in our heart, it should resonate in our mind, and it should resonate from our lips. Who is a God like you? So let's take a brief look at the background, because this is incredible, in my opinion. Back to chapter 1, please, in verse 1. That's not just my opinion. This is God's word. It is incredible. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria is shorthand for Israel, the northern tribes. Jerusalem, shorthand for Judah, the southern two tribes. So this message, while it is directed toward Judah, the southern two tribes, it also envisions some things about the north as well. And so here is Micah prophesying the word of the Lord comes through him, and he's prophesying in these days, the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay, This is is what we have. This is the background. Head over, please, in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 27. We will first... Notice the 16-year reign of Jotham. Micah, while he was preaching, while he was ministering, he had a contemporary. His name is Isaiah. He had another contemporary. His name is Amos. Amos was a little bit before him. Another contemporary, Hosea. So if you, if you look at the messages of all four of these men that God Worked out, you, you'd really get a really great flavor for the wonders that were happening in, in happening in Israel and Judah. Wonders, maybe not. Second Chronicles twenty-seven, beginning in verse one. Listen carefully. Says Jotham was twenty-five years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Zadok. Listen, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's good. According to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but still the people acted corruptly. So here we are, 16 years of Jotham. And the the generic statement is he did what was right with this asterisk in this recording. He did not enter the temple of the Lord. Well, his father Uzziah entered the temple of the Lord inappropriately and received a scourge called leprosy. So maybe he was a little squeamish about heading into the temple. 2 Kings also adds this to this concept in chapter 15, verse 35. It says, Nevertheless, this is under Jotham, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So under Jotham, he wouldn't go in the temple. Under Jotham, he didn't remove the high places. Now the high places, they they made these altars on the high places. And the reason they did this was they would worship other gods there. They would worship other gods. And various other things took place in those high places in accordance with the practices of those other gods. A lot of times there were uh, inappropriate sexual activities going on on those high places. It says he didn't remove them, and the people sacrificed to, to these gods. Now, let me ask you, are, Is the people are the people in good shape spiritually or bad shape spiritually? Bad shape under the days of Jotham. Now, I want to warn you, it gets worse. Sixteen years of Jotham, and then you have sixteen years of Ahaz. So take a look at chapter 28. 2nd Chronicles 28. We're just going to read verses 1 through 4. We can't hit all of the lowlights of Ahaz's reign. It says in verse 1, Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Here we are introduced to Ahaz, who has taken Jotham, who, it says, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but didn't go into the the temple, He did not remove the high places. The people acted wickedly. And now here we have Ahaz. Sixteen years, friends. Sixteen years. Idol worship. So debased is Ahaz that he sacrificed his children to other gods. You could preach a message on that. This country is doing the same thing. With very few exceptions and I am not excusing the exceptions, but with very few exceptions, the abortion of little babies, unborn babies, is exactly because of worship. The worship of convenience. The worship of finance. The worship of discomfort or comfort. The list can go on and on. This is at the heart of our burning our babies to other gods. This is what Ahaz is doing. King of the righteous tribes of Judah. To add to this debauchery, Micah lets us know about what's going on, and he he brings some accusations against Judah at this time. Now, what I'll say to you before we leave Ahaz is that because of this debased living and this violation of the law of God, this absolute and utter disregard for the, the Holy One of Israel, for God Himself, God allowed duress from Syria and from the northern tribes of Israel to come upon Judah but there's more. Listen to what some of the accusations that will come across in Micah's prophecy here. Micah charges the people with idolatry and seizure of property. We're going to go through this, so you don't need to turn there. I'm just giving you the little little lowlights here. Idolatry and seizure of property. Micah accuses the people of Israel for their failure, first of all in civil leadership, then in religious leadership, and then in prophetic leadership. And then Micah accuses the people of misunderstanding the sacrificial system and corrupt business practice and violence. I just want you to have a little flavor. Have you seen any of that stuff going on in our day? I wonder if Micah is relevant. I think Micah is quite... Relevant to us and to our world, to our nation, to our region, to our state, and to our city. It is quite relevant. This is what's happening. It is it's a, it's quite an abysmal situation. Now, because of their sinfulness, around this time, we're talking about the, the 700s B.C., Micah has been prophesying, right? He's prophesied under Jotham, and then he's prophesying under Ahaz, And right around this time, the Assyrians come into Israel, and they they annihilate Israel, and they take Israel captive. And Micah is warning the people of Judah about this. Take a look now, we read this in our scripture reading, look at Jeremiah 26. Hold your hand in in 2 Chronicles, because we're going to come right back, because we, we have to look at the beginning of 2 Chronicles 29. But look at Jeremiah 26 for a moment. If you have a hard time finding it, you can find it back in your bulletin. This is a little later in history from Micah. Jeremiah is now being persecuted for his preaching and his communication of God's message. And the people kind of have him on trial, so to speak. And in Jeremiah 26, beginning in verse 16, we have this... Accounting that we already read this morning. It says, So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man, Jeremiah, does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion, that's Judah, that's Israel, I mean, excuse me, that's Jerusalem, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him, Micah, to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? Listen. And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. It's a nice little nugget right there in Jeremiah 28, verse 19, that says, Micah's message had some kind of an impact. 16 years of Jotham The people are still acting corruptly. Sixteen years of Ahaz, they have sunk to the lowest of lows under Ahaz. And here's Micah preaching away. And he feels probably pretty crummy, don't you think? No one's listening to me. I'm giving them the word of the Lord. I'm telling them who is like God and they don't care. Destruction in the northern tribes destruction is upon us it's not a popular message but look please look at second chronicles 29 out of nowhere out of nowhere rescue rescue out of nowhere nothing changed it was only getting worse and Second Chronicles 29 comes along. Look, please, at verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. How, how great was this in the first year of his reign? We're not messing around. We're not wasting time. We're not going to dance our way to this in the first year of his reign. The Lord, uh, excuse me, uh, in the in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them, and he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square, and he said to them, "Hear me, Levites." Now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have transgressed Trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering. And you as you see with your eyes for indeed because of this our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons our daughters and our wives are in captivity now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us my sons do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Listen, out of nowhere, Hezekiah, what's up with that? How'd that happen? Well, a, a spiritual messenger, a gifted messenger, a potent Message. A fertile soil. Oh, really? Really? He was a spiritual messenger before. He was a gifted messenger before. His message was great before. And the ground upon which that message came was better earlier. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Out of nowhere, God. Out of nowhere, God intervened in history. You might wonder why. What happened? Why Hezekiah? Why now? Why not just let them go into Assyrian captivity? Well, I have some suggestions. Around the time of Hezekiah's rule, the northern tribes were taken by Assyria. I already mentioned that. What I didn't mention is one of the practices of the the Assyrians. When they would take a people captive, they would force them to marry in their culture, to marry people of their own people. Why? We want that culture to exist no longer... We want that race to exist no longer. We want that people to exist no longer. If we intermingle them with us, they'll become us instead of them. They'll no longer be a them. There's no such thing as them. Their history has come to an absolute and complete stop. Why did God intervene? I submit to you that God preserved for Israel, for Judah, and for us, the line of the Messiah through which salvation has come to the ends of the earth. God intervenes out of nowhere. And here we have the Assyrians already having taken the the northern ten tribes captive, coming into Jerusalem, coming into Judah. And in one night, the angel of the Lord snuffs out the life of 185,000 Assyrian warriors. Why? To save much people alive. Isn't that what Joseph said? Back in Genesis 50, oh, you had plans of evil against me, but God had plans of good to bring it to pass as is this day to save much people alive. Then He spoke of a famine. Now we speak of salvation to the ends of the earth because God intervened in history in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their dastardly deeds, in spite of their debauchery, in spite of their absolute and utter disregard for Him. It's not because of Micah. It's not because of the message of Micah. It's not because of the recipients of the message. It's because of the God of all glory. There is no one like him. He is matchless. He is peerless. He is glorious. Friends, he's still reigning in glory. One more passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 1, excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to tell you, friends, I want to tell you that God is a rescuer. In the face of our rebellion, in the face of our idolatry, God is a rescuer. He rescues individuals, He rescues families, and He rescues people, like people groups. He does this. As we begin... Our approach into the book of Micah. We need to see this rescuing God even in the face of the judgment that he issues. And my question for you is how, the question that should be in your mind is how do we respond to this this morning? How do we respond to what we're looking at? And the first way I'll tell you to respond is to rejoice, for through their salvation, through Judah's salvation, Our salvation was secured. There should be the greatest rejoicing of your soul as you consider God intervening in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Secondly, like Micah, whether our message is being heeded or not, imagine 16 years and then 16 years and you got nothing. Nothing. You know what? I may as well just pack it in. Probably entered into Micah's mind. Dozens and dozens of times. But whether our message is being heeded or not, we ought to continue to preach, to share, and to live the gospel. For we know that God is the God of salvation. And that He is not done. When He chooses, He can intervene in history to change a life, to change a family, And to change a people. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read a lengthy passage as we conclude in our minds. Let, Let this be our conclusion with, I'll make one statement when we're done with this. Read this with me. I'll read, you follow along, but read this and understand the greatness of our God. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness, did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Let's stop there for just a moment. I wonder if Micah adapted his message as the days went along. I wonder if he thought, you know, if I just change it just a little bit, if I just tweak it here and there and make it a little bit more acceptable to the people they'll like it more they'll listen if i if i make it a little shorter so that their their backsides aren't so uncomfortable while they sit to listen if i if i shorten it a bit i wonder if if that'll make them respond you know what paul's saying to those who don't believe it's foolishness and yet we keep preaching it that's what he said he just God, through His wisdom, does what's great even when we preach that same message. It says at the end of verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. Now, is the preaching of the cross foolishness to you? No, because you believe. And so you, you'd never hesitate to follow the cross because it has saved your life. Jesus Christ has saved you. Why would you turn anywhere else? But when people aren't listening, and we keep preaching it, it just seems so foolish to them. Why do they keep doing this? And yet, it's through the preaching of the cross that God does his work. Verse 22. For Jews require or request a sign, and Greeks... Seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not were of no repute to bring to nothing the things that that are. There's someone They're somebody. They're special. And the nobodies show the somebodies that their something really is nothing and that our nothing really is something. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Notice where our redemption is. Who is it found in? Christ. Notice where our wisdom is. Where is it found? Christ. Notice where our sanctification is. Where is it found? In Christ Christ. Why? Because if sanctification came for me, I would glory in me! But God has put to nothing the things that are in me. That my glorying would never be in me, but in Him alone. I want to ask you, friends, who are you glorying in? Who are you glorying in? And who is a God like our God. Let's pray together. Father, words fail us at times like this as we consider your greatness, your majesty, your love, your kindness, your long-suffering, your faithfulness to preserve a rebellious people so you might save that rebellious people and countless millions Since then, thank you, Father, that you've saved a broken, rebellious sinner like me. I thank you for each broken, rebellious sinner in this room that you've saved. And Father, we ask if there is a broken, rebellious sinner in this room that has not experienced the joy of knowing Jesus, the freedom that comes from trusting him, that even in this hour, Before they leave, they would trust Jesus and receive life. That they might have joy and peace and wisdom and righteousness and truth and and sanctification and redemption that comes only through Christ. Do your work. We We are willing to have you do your work in us. And we're thankful that even when there have been people throughout the the ages that were not willing, you made it so. You, You stand alone. In Jesus' name, amen.